I, uh, I have been traveling overseas for decades, preaching and teaching. I do workshops, seminars, conferences, and much of the time I have to work through translators who have to interpret what I'm saying in English to an audience that usually does not understand what I'm saying. And I tell you, there have been some times when I've had some really, really interesting experiences working with a translator. There are times when I will say something and the translator looks at me and says, I, I don't understand that word you just used. And so then we move into a little bit of a conversation. We just kind of tell the audience, hey, just time out for a moment. Let us get our act together. And, you know, we talk through what's the best word to use. And then we continue. Now, there have been other times when I'm speaking and the translator gives the part. But, and there's always, it's always the people who sit in the front row. And some of them are themselves interpreters, translators, and they're very fluent in both languages. And so every now and then, the, my interpreter says something, and they'll have one of the folks here, they'll interrupt the interpreter and say, oh, no, say it this way, because there's a better word that you can use than, than what you did. And so they do that. But here's what's most interesting. Every now and then, I will use a word, and the translator stops me and says, I understand that word because I know English, but that word doesn't exist in our language, and the idea doesn't even exist. And so then he and I have to, or he and she, sometimes there are phenomenal women translators I've had, we'll sit, we just have to have a bit of a conversation. So how can we communicate a word and an idea that doesn't really exist for this people that we're talking to? And words matter so much. Words are how we express ideas. Words are how we describe reality. Words are how we understand our experiences. And words are how we tell our stories. And when we don't have words, or we don't have the right words, we are greatly limited in doing all those really important things. January has been all about one word, a very important word, but a word that a lot of us, we just don't really understand nearly enough. And today, what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you four ideas that will unpack and advance this word called lost. Now, I'm going to talk about what it means to be lost, but I'm also going to talk about what it means to be the, let me just be very careful about this, what it means to be the loser or somebody who has lost something. Now, you know, we hear the word loser and we think right away, well, I'm just bad. Now, I'm not, that's not how I'm using the word loser. Or we think of the loser as somebody who's been defeated like the Giants. <laughs> all right. I'm sorry for all Giant fans out there. My, my apologies. But, uh, but no, but that's not how I'm going to word, use, uh, use the word loser. There's actually a far more important definition that we have to have for that word. And when we have that, it's really going to help us with a lot of things. And I'm going to tell you some stories about being lost and about being a loser. And I'm going to tell you some of my stories. I'm going to tell you some stories from the culture out there. And some of them I think you actually already know. And we're going to use one particular story from the Bible. It is about a man named Nicodemus. And we find his story and his encounter with Jesus in John chapter 3. So let me get started with his story with the first idea that we're going to use to help us unpack this idea of loss, and that is individuals and entire groups can be lost. Okay, now remember our definition of loss, something is lost when it is not where it is supposed to be. 
And that idea we got from a guy named Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard says, you know, when we are lost to God, that means we are not where we are meant to be, where, he, you know, we're not by his side. We are not in his kingdom. We are not integrated into his life. We are missing out on all that God has for us. It's really, really significant. We are not where we are meant to be, and we are not partaking in the life we are meant to have. Now, that's, that's what Dallas Willard, and I think he's right on, says it means to be lost. So listen to this. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Let me just stop right there, and that is this group called Pharisees. Nicodemus is one of them. The Pharisees, as Pastor Donovan was explaining a little bit last week, the Pharisees were the religious experts of the day. In fact, they were the religious elite of the day. And Nicodemus is apparently outstanding among the elite because he is one of the rulers. Now, the Pharisees were a group of religious people that were absolutely convinced that of all people, they were exactly where they should be, and they had it together. Jesus, on the other hand, looks at the Pharisees and his encounters with the Pharisees and says, they are the most lost of all people in Israel. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus has this sort of long diatribe against the Pharisees talking about just how seriously lost they are. And five times he winds up using language, you are blind. You're lost and you don't even know it. And six times he uses the word hypocrite. Uh, you know, they're acting as if they have it all together when in reality they're the ones that have it together not at all. Now, by the way, uh, after he's done that, we come to the next verse after that long section. We come to another verse in verse 37. And now Jesus begins to talk not to the Pharisees, but to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Let me stop there for a moment. Imagine that, the city of God. The city of God that above all should be the ones who welcome with open arms and, and, and sense of hearts any word that God wants to give to them. But Jerusalem, the city, is so lost that they actually kill the messengers of God. That's how lost they are. And then Jesus goes on with this. I, I just, I, would have, I wanted to gather you together close into my arms. I wanted to gather you together like a mother, a mother chicken gathers a little hen so they are, are safe and protected and secure and nourished. That's what I wanted to do for you, Jerusalem, but you would have none of it. I mean, the entire city is lost. And earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, hey, my, my very mission is I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He takes that right from the Old Testament prophet. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 50, my people have been lost sheep. Now, I just want you to understand, individuals can be lost, and oftentimes we think it's individuals that are lost, and they are, but entire groups of people can be lost. I have... Two brief comments, and I'm just going to make comments, and I'm not going to go any further with those comments, and I know you're going to wish I would. <laughs> Comment number one, religious groups are sometimes the most lost people you'll find, and they don't know it. Okay, number two, I think we in America, and I think we conservative Christians in America, we have been losing our way in some very, very significant ways. And we've got to figure out how to get our way back. We're going to have to figure out how to get back on the way. Now, I know you want me to go a whole lot further with that, and I'm not going to right now. In February and March, we will in our next series. Idea number two. 
To understand this thing called loss, you have to understand that there is an objective rea reality about being lost and there is a subjective experience of being lost. Here's what I mean. You can be objectively really actually lost, but subjectively you may or may not know it. Okay, the objective is the reality. The subjective is the feeling or experience. There's all kinds of people that have been lost objectively and they don't feel it. Now, Nicodemus is a part of a group that is very lost, but he is an interesting individual. We come to verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. Isn't that interesting? He's an elite leader. Why is he kind of sneaking in to see Jesus at night? Well, listen, when you're an elite leader, you don't ever admit that you're lost. You don't ever admit that you got questions. And by the way, the Pharisees are already having some real, real contention with Jesus. And yet Nicodemus is being drawn to this person called Jesus. He's got to do it in secret. So his buddies don't know what's going on. Let's continue. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Because nobody can do these signs that you're doing. Nobody can do these miracles. Nobody can teach the way you're doing unless, like, God is with you. So you see, Nicodemus is beginning to have this, like, real kind of quandary going on inside. He belongs to a particular group that is very opposed to Jesus, but he as an individual is looking, saying, man, there's something about Jesus that I'm being drawn to. Now, for the next 12 verses in this conversation. And by the way, this total conversation, we have about 15 verses. You could read through them in about a minute and a half. I think their conversation went on for hours and hours and hours. And we just have a couple little catchphrases. I mean, I would love to know what all they talked about. But here's what we do know they talked about. Jesus begins to talk to Nicodemus about the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you're missing out on the kingdom of God. You're meant to be right there in the middle of it, and you're not. Nicodemus, you're, you're missing out on this thing called being born again, being alive with the life of my father just resonating inside of you, and you're missing his life. Nicodemus, the spirit of God is flowing and moving, and, and, and you're missing it. And Nicodemus, there is eternal life that, that the Father has for you. And because you're not with the Father, you're missing that as well. N Nicodemus, there, there are objective realities that now for the first time you're subjectively beginning to understand. I, I, I'm missing out on those things. When I was a first semester college student in 1974, I was objectively profoundly lost but subjectively, I didn't know it. Now, I, I felt all kinds of things. I felt I was angry and depressed and discouraged and confused and wondering, should I even be in college? And, you know, who should I have as friends? I mean, I had all kinds of stuff going on inside, all kinds of dark things I felt. But what I did feel is I didn't feel that I was lost. I didn't feel that until I went to hear a Christian speaker who is in this captivating way described who Jesus is and I suddenly began to understand man I am missing out on so many things and and suddenly I began to have this subjective awareness that I'm pretty lost that was 1974 of course that story had a happy ending because I found Jesus I, actually it's much better to say Jesus found me I'm gonna come back to that at the end uh, fast forward to 
1998, 1999. Becky and I are up in New York. And the first couple of years went pretty good, but then it took like a dark turn. You know, the church was deeply divided, lots of factions, lots of different visions, and lots of different agendas for the church. And you know, I couldn't make anybody happy. Oh, I'll tell you what, that's one of the worst things that a pastor can try and do is make everybody happy. So I've stopped. <laughs> but I couldn't make anybody happy. I felt like it was a failure. Um, wasn't accomplishing what I, I went up there to do. Uh, but in addition, I, I, I felt very distant from God. I felt very, very disconnected from God. And so, in fact, here, here's what was going on. I, as a religious person, I was feeling, I was objectively really lost. I had lost my way. And subjectively, all oh, did I ever feel it. <clears throat> I, I was lost and I knew it. <clears throat> what, I, uh, what I encountered was a, one particular writer that was referring to an author named uh, Dante Dante wrote the, the Divine Comedy. The first part of the Divine Comedy is called, it's called the Inferno. And the very first lines of, of, of this massive book, one of, the, one of the outstanding pieces of literature in history here, uh, here well, there's, there's a picture of Dante in a dark wood lost. So this is like one of the woodcut images from one of the early editions of, of um, uh, the Inferno. I mean, when I saw the image, it really grabbed me. But here are the opening words. In the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself astray in a dark wood where the straight road had been lost. In the middle of the journey of life, he's referred to as middle age. And in the middle age of his life, in that season, he, he realized that the way that I had been walking, it was lost. And he goes on and describes what that time was like. And again, he's using the metaphor of a wood. Uh, that wood was savage, harsh, and dense. To even think about it back then, my heart trembles. Man, I, I read those words and I said, that's me. I was like, I was, I was in the middle, middle stage of life. And, and in fact, with everything else going on, my dad was in the process of dying from cancer and we're four hours north and away while my family's going through this horrible stuff. I mean, I was in this dark woods. And I was lost and I knew it. Okay, let me introduce you to another idea that might, might be helpful. It's, it's the word liminal. All right, again, not a familiar word, but it's a, it's a good word. Uh, you know, we've heard of subliminal, but okay, let me tell, tell you what liminal means. Liminal is when you are at an in-between place or space. You are in between something. But, but even more than in between, it's like you're getting to the boundary. You're getting to the threshold. You're getting close to something different. You, you were there. You're not yet here. You're in between, but there's something that's like right there. Uh, a liminal place is a place of... Tension and transition. A liminal place is a place of possibility, but sometimes we get a little paralyzed. A liminal place is where we have this uh, emotional experience of ambiguity and confusion and this dawning awareness that there's something else out there. Nicodemus was in this liminal place and space when he encountered Jesus. Now, I, I mentioned that entire groups can be lost, and so here, subjectively, not know it. 
Uh, we are familiar that the middle age experience of life is a time when people start to feel lost. They're feeling the disappointments that have accumulated. They're feeling the things that have not worked out. They're just piling up more than they used to. And so we start just kind of getting tired of, we're, we're tired of our family, we're tired of our marriages, sometimes we're tired of our kids, we're tired of our parents, we're tired of our jobs, we're tired of our friends, we're tired of our church, we're tired of our religion, we're just getting tired. And, you know, okay, you're, you're at this, 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 this liminal place. There's, a, there's another, another group of people. This is fascinating because it, you know, COVID hit and did a whole lot of damage to us. You know what's interesting? The group that left the church in largest numbers and have not come back are, I mean, I know you're not going to believe this, but it's baby boomers. We're looking at all, it's all the young people left. The, no, it's the baby boomers who have left. Who are baby boomers? Well, baby boomers are those people who are a, a decade or more into the, the middle years. And they're really tired. You know, they've been sometimes Christians for decades, you know. And it's gotten kind of old, blasé. You know, they don't pray much. They don't read their Bible much. They don't connect in intimate ways as much with the community of Jesus. They don't serve much. I mean, there's just not much that they're doing any longer. And it's those folks that in large numbers have walked away from from the church and maybe faith itself. And I mean, it's just fascinating. You know, our, our entire culture is in this liminal space. In 2019, there is a group that I'm sure this group is not on most of your playlists. It is Five Finger Death Punch. Okay, I'm assuming most of you don't, don't listen to too much of their, their music. But they, they wrote a song called A Little Bit Off. They wrote it in 2019. Remember COVID year? And it came out in 2020, became a massive, massive hit. I'm going to read what they're saying about being a little bit off. Because you see, that's the signature song of 2020. We're all feeling a little bit off. I'm a little bit off today. Something down inside me is different. Woke up a little bit off today. I can tell that something's wrong. I'm a little thrown off today. There's something going on inside of me. I'm a little bit off today, a little bit off today. I don't really want to try today. I, I see nothing in my reflection today. I'm a little bit dry today. I feel like I could die today. Can I, by the way, he's using, they're, they're using, I'm a little bit off, but don't you get a sense that there's, there's more than a little bit off? It seems like it's not just a little bit off. There's a whole lot of lost that is going on. Okay, we go down. and uh, So by the way, this is five-finger death punch. You saw what they looked like. I'm just going to, re I'm a little pissed off today. And there's nothing you can do. I'm a little put off today, and I couldn't even tell you why. Got a really short fuse today. I'm a little ticked off today. I told a little white lie today. I couldn't even cry today. I think my heart is finally broken today. I don't need a reason why today. I'm just a little bit off today. And it just goes on. And, and okay, now listen to this next. So what do you do when you're feeling all that stuff? Well, here, I got a little too high today. I got lost inside a sea of madness. I crashed a little bit hard today, a little too hard today. Man, that's, that's life 
for us in the COVID years. I mean, remember, COVID years was not just a pandemic. COVID years was when everything just kind of came crashing down and politics, culture, race, religion, sexuality. I mean, it just all came crashing down and we all felt a little bit off today or maybe a whole lot of loss today. That's, that's, our, that's become our cultural experience. Okay, idea number three. There are those who are lost, and there are those who are losers, which means if you're a loser, it means you've lost someone or you've lost something. That's how I want you to understand what it means to be a loser. Not that you're bad, not that you've been defeated, but that you've lost something that you care about. And the more you care about what is lost, the more, the more what you've lost is valuable to, to you, the more you feel the pain of being a loser. So, a dollar bill, and, you know, if I go to put that in my pocket and it doesn't get in my pocket, and a little bit later today I go and look for my dollar bill, I realize I have lost my dollar bill. I am a loser of my one dollar bill. Now, because that one dollar bill is not very valuable to me, I'm not going to give much more of a thought to having lost a one dollar bill. Now, this, I, I, I think it belongs to Pastor Aaron. I just, I just took it out of his wallet. <laughs> no, all right. if, if I would, would go to put this in my pocket, well, you know what, let me just put it here just in case. <laughs> and and I, I dropped it and I lost that $100 bill. When I went to look for that $100 bill later and it wasn't there, I'm going to be much more upset because I'm a bigger loser. I lost $100, and it mattered to me. When I was nine years old, mom and dad took me and my brother, and we went to the Canadian World Exposition. It's called the Montreal 67, the Expo. And one of the things mom and dad said is, okay, Brian, stay close. Don't wander away. So here we are walking through these massive crowds. I'm going to tell you, they were massive crowds. I'm just nine years old, and you know, and... Mom and dad got lost. <laughs> and I couldn't find them. So mom and dad had given some instructions that if we did get separated, here's what we were to do. And so what we were told is there are these Canadian Royal Mounted Police everywhere. And I went up to one and said, I'm lost. And he knew exactly what to do. He took me to the place where there were lost boys and girls. <laughs> and there were a bunch of us in there. And they had games and books and TV and food. And I, mean, I just got some food and I got a book and I'm sitting down and I'm not minding being lost at all. <laughs> and I think about an hour later, mom and dad came in. And oh my, because they had lost their son. They were feeling something much more than what I was feeling being lost. Are you tracking with me on this? Now, when mom saw me, this look of panic went to relief. Dad still looked a little irritated. <laughs> now, I don't know if he was irritated because I had been lost or irritated that he actually found me. He's going to have to take me back home. I never quite figured that one out. But, okay, listen, the more valuable something is to you, the more pain you feel and, and the more you feel like a loser because you've lost something that really matters. Do you remember in 2010, down in Chile, there's a terrible cave-in and there were 33 miners trapped almost a half mile down in the earth. 
33 minors, 33, they were all, all men, sons, fathers, brothers, dads, and 33 sets of family and friends up on the surface. Now, these individuals down here, they knew how lost they were, and they knew how dangerous things were, and how, how low the chances were for them for survival. And up here, there were 33 sets of family, and these families deeply felt the pain of having lost people that they cared about. And for 69 days, the world watched as an amazing rescue operation was mounted that actually worked. Now, Chile alone spent $22 million. And who knows, all these countries were involved in, we were sending, I mean, we don't even count how many other countries were involved in all that money. They spent. Chile spent $22 million to rescue 33 lost people. Now, much more recently, it was in 2018, when, remember the, the Thailand Boys Soccer Club? Uh, remember that? I mean, there were 12 of them and the coach, and after they had done some practice, oh, let's just go exploring caves. And they did. And yet the rains came and, water, and they were trapped. And here's what happened. At first, people didn't know where they were. They just knew they were lost. Eventually, they figured out where they were and that they couldn't get to them. And, and for two and a half weeks, we followed the rescue operations. And they had to bring in experts from around the world. And the, the, the Thailand government never did tell us how much it cost. Here's one of the things we do know. One of the rescuers, one of the expert divers that took oxygen down to these, 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 uh, these students, uh, one rescuer you know, gave, gave their life. They died in the rescue operation. There was a group of 10 tourists. They were up in the northern wilds of Canada. Ice. And their families didn't know where they were. They lost connection with them. And so the 10 families back here, they got hold of the Canadian organization. And next thing you know, Canada is mounting a $2.2 million rescue operation. And, and eventually one of the helicopters gets there and finds them and they get down and say, oh, no, we're not lost. We're okay. No, you know, no problem. We got it. Well, their families back home didn't think that. And the Canadian government spent $2.2 million. Sure didn't feel that way. There's a businessman back in 2007 who, uh, who was flying a private plane, crashed someplace in Nevada, and they searched for a long time. They didn't find them. His wife spent $1 million of their own money to try and find her missing husband. The state of Nevada spent $2 million trying to find him. They didn't find him. Eventually, the state of Nevada went to his wife and says, hey, we spent a lot of money. Could you give us like another half million toward this? And she says, no. I spent a million dollars. That was enough. Okay, now I know some of you are going to be thinking about that one just a, a little bit. <laughs> How much are you worth? She decided one million is my limit. Do you know the United States Coast Guard is the greatest search and rescue operation in the world? Um, they spend about $700 million a year to find and rescue lost people. Because it's one thing to be lost, it is a whole nother thing to be the loser who has lost somebody. And man, when we've lost somebody, we feel the pain deeply and we mobilize resources to go and find and return that which has been lost to us. Now, what I'm going to say next, I am not being flippant and I'm not being a heretic. God is the greatest loser in the universe. I'm going to say that again. God is the greatest loser in the universe. 
God deeply feels the pain of every single person who is not where they're meant to be. Where are they meant to be? They're meant to be right there beside the heart of God. And every person that has wandered away from where they are meant to be and they are missing from the life of God, God the Father deeply, profoundly feels the pain of losing that person. Last week, Pastor Donovan talked about the, you know, the father and the prodigal lost son and the father rejoicing with great joy at the, at the lost son is finally coming back. You know, there's another part of that story, and that is the waiting, watching, missing, longing, praying, despairing father who was just waiting for who knows how long until the lost son came back. God is the greatest loser there is. And we who are lost, we don't, sometimes even know that we're lost or feel that we're lost, but we certainly think much more about us being lost and much less about the one who has lost us. Here's the fourth idea. God is not only a loser, God is a finder. Now, I see, that's where the story with Nicodemus winds up. Jesus, Jesus says these things. It's right at the end of the story. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but God sent his, God didn't send his son into the world. Oh, you all bad lost people. Why are you so lost? That's not what Jesus, Jesus came to, to bring lost people back home. In Luke chapter 19, he says, for the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. And John chapter 10, I didn't just come to seek and save you. I came to give you life, and I came to give you life abundantly. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Father has sent me on a mission, and I am the way back to the heart of the Father. I am the way back to the place where you need to be, and that is with God the Father. There, there's a man named Francis Thompson. He was a promising uh, he was studying for the priesthood. He was, he was going to make a promising priest. Eventually, he started studying to become a, a doctor. He would have been an amazing doctor. But what happened is he was injured, he got ill, and he became an opium, an opium addict and an addict to other substances as well. And back then, when those things happened, you, know, you were in bad shape. He became addicted. He became destitute. He became impoverished. He got sicker and sicker. He was homeless. And during that time of his lostness to his family, to his friends, he was just lost he, he had the heart, the, the, heart of a, the heart of a priest, the mind of a doctor, the soul of a poet, and he wrote the, a, a, a poem that became known as The Hound of Heaven. I've got a link for it in the sermon notes. Now, it's a mystical poem. It's hard to understand, but here's the gist of it. Francis Thompson, who was lost, says, you know, I, I'm lost by intention. I'm just running away from God. I'm fleeing him. I'm fleeing him. I'm fleeing him. And yet as I'm running as I can to get away from God, I always hear him running after me. I always hear the, the sound of his feet running after me, relentlessly pursuing me. I can't get away from him. That's the heart of, of the God who has lost his sons and daughters. He comes chasing after us. One of the best rabbis in our, our nation's history, a name named Abraham Heschel, he wrote a book, God's Search for Man. You know, we're always saying, oh, I search for God. I finally found God. No. God's been searching for you. And there's a day when it comes, he finally grabs hold of you. That's what living word is all about. Man, we're just a place for lost people and for losers. Okay? We've lost us so much. 
and we've been lost. And this is a place where we just gather together because we know the, there's a heart of God just relentlessly chasing after us. And we have a song that we want you to listen to. It's just going to kind of sum up everything I've been talking about. And I'm just going to pick this up so nobody trips over it. <laughs> Let me pray. Lord, thank you, for, thank you for your amazing heart. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thanks for chasing after us relentlessly. Thanks for paying not only $2 million, not $22 million, but a gazillion dollars to come after us. And Lord, you'll pay even more if you need to. Oh man, your love. The amazing, reckless, wonderful love. May each person here right now experience and connect and be brought back home.